Good morning, everybody. Glad you are here this morning, and welcome to those of you who are listening to our podcasts or who are either streaming live or watching later on on our social media channels. Don't forget to like, comment, and share. Um, if you would like to like, comment, or share, or surprisey face, or shocked face, or fist pound, or whatever other emojis you feel like, it's just a way that you can help us uh, spread some of the teaching and the things that's going on here at Echo to a larger audience. So we appreciate that. Um, just in case uh, you're tuning in now and you missed some of my uh, prayer from earlier, you would have missed the entire prayer earlier. I do uh, want to pause. I want to be much more mindful of when we have holidays or special months in our national calendar, when appropriate to be able to pause and, and, and bring context and affirmation to that within our services. And, and we do, this is the time of the year where in the United States, our government has set aside, uh, really since the 1860s, has set aside a day uh, where we uh, memorialize or we commemorate uh, fallen servicemen and women who have given their lives in service to our country. It started back um, in the haze of the Civil War and it's moved up on moved through those years up until now and they've made it a national holiday and so it is appropriate as we prayed this morning just to it's not something where you say happy memorials day it's it's not really one of those type of celebratory type things it's more of a thought-provoking time and so can i just encourage you as you spend time with family or as you cook out and spend time with family and friends and that's all good it's wonderful inject some meaning at some point into that, whether it's before one of the meals, if you pause and you pray for God's blessing over our country, and if you think of uh, people, families who are connected to service, men and women who have laid down their life, that would be appropriate for you to do. If you have children or grandkids who are going to be around, uh, to be able to sit down with them and help them understand why they have a day off of school tomorrow in whatever way is contextually appropriate for them would be a good thing. If you fly a flag at your house, flying it to half-mast, uh, 3 o'clock p.m. is a time tomorrow where uh, there's a national moment of silence. Just finding some way of connecting some meaning to what we are, uh, what we're honoring and celebrating. I find that as we go by year after year after year, sometimes we forget why we're doing some of the things that we do, and so it's just an important thing for us to be able to do. I think of a former student of mine, specialist Jonathan Davis. He went uh, when I was a youth pastor in Georgia. He was in my youth ministry from sixth grade the whole way up to twelfth grade. He had gone on several missions trips with us. Was one of my student leaders. Was really close to him and his brothers and. Um, he, uh, his, he went into the army right out of high school and at 19 years old gave his life in Afghanistan to a sniper bullet defending our country and I think of him every year and I think of my great grandparents who served so proudly overseas and I know many of you, probably all of you um, who have spent uh, any time here in the States have some connection to somebody who, uh, who either is in the process of laying down their life on a daily basis or who has given their life in protection of our country or of our state or of our county. And so appropriate for us to pause there and be able to mention that. Uh, also, I do not want to become the center of a story that's not mine, nor do I want to insert, insert our church in the middle of a story that's not about our church. Um, but it is appropriate for us also, as I prayed earlier, to just as a church and as citizens to be in a special season of prayer and sensitivity and reflection on the events of this last week. Uh, a brave officer giving her life in defense of uh, the safety of our homes and of our community. And uh, it's, it's an ongoing story. There's more to be said. We're not going to plumb the depths of it this morning. But I do want to bring just a, a sense of awareness and recognition to that and then call us to some kind of response. I know um, there's been many things written and said, and I won't improve all of it. I'm going to suggest one thing now and one thing a little later. 
uh, I've been so proud of, even in the midst of some of the worst coming out of people's lives. I've seen some of the best come out of people's lives in this last week, too. I've seen some of the very best come out of so many people. So proud of how our community, uh, as a whole, there's isolated exceptions, but it's been so... I live in this community just like you do. My address is 21234. I live in Parkville. My son's in the Perry Hall School District. I live here just like you do. And I'm proud to be from here. I love where I live. I'm not the one that's going to bash our community. I am an enthusiastic supporter. I want to be part of a community. I want this community to be attractive for people to move into. I want them to say, I want to be part of, of moving my family. That's a great place for me to retire. That's a great place for me to start out. That's a great place for me to move my kids. I want to be part of that. Why? Because they have good schools and it's safe and the community's tight-knit. Uh, I, I, I feel some of the unrest that you feel about that. And there's been such a, a positive outpouring of love and support and appreciation for our, our, our police. As the weeks go by and as this memory fades in a lot of our minds, the question is what long-term difference will there be? Can I just encourage us as a church family to do one thing? Can you be more disciplined and will I be more disciplined to obey the law? Can I call us to being more mindful of obeying the laws and especially obeying the laws in front of the young ones who watch us? Can we slow down? Drive a speed limit? Can we stop at stop signs and look both ways? Can we just be more mindful of look, we it's another way you can bring support to those who are out there protecting us every single day. Many of those men and women attend this church. But can I just call us, it's just one small thing to add to all the other things that we're talking about and we're all diagnosing what's wrong and what needs to be done and I'm not equipped to do that. But can I encourage you along with your, your well wishes and your shows of your support and your generosity and your words of thanks and those are all very well received by all of the men and the women who serve us, absolutely. But can I also call us to a higher standard of setting examples? Let's obey the law and let's teach our children to obey the law. Okay, can we do that? I know you weren't excited about slowing down, <laughs> but it's a law, isn't it? Isn't it? You're not going to listen to anything else I have to say this morning, right? I started preaching before I started preaching. I'm calling you to honor the Lord by obeying the law. Because if you teach a young person that one law is okay to obey at your convenience, what are you teaching them about all the other laws? Even if you don't agree, do you agree? <laughs> Some of you are thinking about it. I probably need to go to the altar call right now that I'm completely discouraged by that response. Let me preach my way forward. Part of me wants to shut my notes and really preach something different right now based on that, but I'm going to move on and I'll spare you for another week. It's a holiday weekend. The Gospel Part 4, A Transformed Life. This is our last of this series. Starting next week, we're going to dive back into studying a book of the Bible chapter by chapter by chapter throughout the summer. We're going to pick up a book we left halfway through. Last year, if you remember, we made the irresponsible decision of trying to preach through the entire book of Revelation, which is a challenging book, but it was a great, it, it was a great study, at least for those of us who are studying and teaching, but we only got halfway through, and so we were kind of off the hook. We're like, maybe the people will forget, and they won't make us come back and finish it, uh, but you, you, you didn't let us do that. So starting next week, we'll jump back into Revelation, where we left off, and we'll finish up the entire book of Revelation uh, by the time we get to the school year next year. So come back with all of your conspiracies and your questions and your really long panoramic diagrams 
with great pictures of beasts and bulls and everything else, and we'll see, we'll see what we learn together. But I want to bring a, a conclusion to the series we've been preaching on the gospel. Here are the big nutshells we've tried to cover over the last few weeks in, in like a paragraph. So if you haven't been with us, this will catch you up. The gospel actually translated means this. It means good news. And the gospel is perhaps the most powerful tool that we have as Christians for life transformation and for leading other people into a relationship with Jesus. The gospel is good news. So here's what we've covered so far. The gospel is primarily news about what Jesus has done. It is not primarily advice about how to live. That's what we've covered so far. It doesn't mean that there isn't advice about how to live. But the gospel is not primarily advice. We are not saved by following advice. We're saved through what Jesus has done. That's the first big, big nutshell that we try to uncover with the gospel. Then we talked a little bit more. Another part of the gospel is this. Jesus lived the life that you and I should have lived, but we haven't. He died a death that he didn't deserve to die, but that you and I deserve. In order that we could be accepted by God, not based on anything that I've done or not for my sake, but I can be accepted by God because of what Jesus did for his sake and by his resume. So we covered that. And then we pushed a little bit further and we said this. The gospel shows us two things about ourselves simultaneously that we have to hold in tension. It shows us that I am more wicked and flawed than I really ever dared to believe, which is the yucky part of it. And simultaneously, that I am more loved and accepted than I could ever imagine at the same time. I am both more wicked and flawed than I ever dared believe, which keeps me humble. But I am also more loved and accepted than I could ever possibly comprehend at the same time, which gives me courage and confidence. So you can walk in Christ being both courageous and confident, but also broken and humble all at the same time. So today we're going to wrap it up by talking about the transformed life. We've talked about the fall of man, the problem of sin, salvation through Jesus. And today we're going to talk about the transformed life. What is supposed to be this thing that happens to us is coming to Christ, being changed by the gospel is supposed to be a life transforming experience like none other. There is supposed to be a difference, an empirical difference, an observable difference, a quantitative difference, a qualitative difference in the life of someone who has been transformed by the gospel in comparison to someone who hasn't been. And so I want to look at that today. And there's a lot of different places we could go. I'm going to stay in Romans this week, uh, the only letter that Paul wrote to people he hadn't met yet, the letter where I think, and basically a lot of people have looked into it, they believe this letter was everything Paul, it's almost like the gospel of Paul. Like he really wanted to get out everything he possibly could, not knowing if he'd ever be able to follow through or follow up on this letter. It is, chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 should be deeply digested by anybody who wants to understand what the gospel is. I'm going to pick an excerpt from chapter 8. I will not do justice to it today, but I will, I'll, I'll hit a couple highlights. Here's what Paul writes. You are not control- He's writing to Christians. He's writing to Christians in the church at Rome in Italy. Italian Christians. Here we go. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. Now, he couldn't say that to someone who wasn't a Christian. 
He's writing to a Christian. And then he's going to tell you how you know you're a Christian. He says, you're controlled by the Spirit if, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. So he's differentiating. He's saying, here's the difference between a believer and a non-believer. A believer has the Spirit of Christ living within them. A non-believer does not. So these people who say, I, we, this idea that we all are God or that we all have God living in us, we all have his Spirit in us, in contradiction with the Bible, okay? Paul is differentiating this for us. He goes further. He says, and Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you've been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same Spirit living within you. Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. But I had to lie. But I had to do this. I would have lost my job. No, you didn't. You just liked your job more than honoring Jesus. But I couldn't hold my tongue. I had to leave it out. No, you just valued exercising your anger rather than exercising self-control. What Paul is saying is you do not, you're not under obligation to do everything your body wants to do. For if you live by its dictates, you'll die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live for all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And now the part I want to dial in on today. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. I wonder if you, this passage is familiar, but I don't know if you've ever digested that sentence. You've not received a spirit that makes you a fearful slave of God. We're not supposed to walk around doing nice things because we're afraid God's going to zap us. That's not our God. You've not received a spirit that makes you his fearful slave. Instead, you receive God's spirit when he adopted you as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we're God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. You, even if you have nobody that will leave you any wealth here on earth, you realize you are written in as an heir of the will of God. In some places, they wouldn't stop clapping for an hour. <laughs> Will you let that sink into your heart this morning? Not by anything that you've done, not because you're his favorite kid above all the other kids, not because you've just been nice, not because you've maneuvered your way into it. You are an heir of God if you are his adopted child. And since we're his children, we're his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we also must share in his suffering. There's a lot in there that I can't touch this morning. Let's hit a couple of the highlights. The Bible doesn't give us an extensive one-paragraph definition of what the gospel is. What it does give us is a bunch of illustrations. There's a lot of different illustrations that the Bible provides for us to understand the gospel. Um, one of them is this illustration of adopted or adoption. We'll look at that in a moment. Another one, especially in the Gospel of Mark, it gives us, instead of saying the gospel, the gospel, the gospel, what it really uses is this phrase, the kingdom. And it describes what becoming a Christian is like using the terminology of exiles or foreigners who have been welcomed in as citizens in a new kingdom. 
The Bible essentially says all of us are exiles. If you trace our family tree back, we started in the kingdom and then we removed ourselves from it through disobedience. And the rest of our life, we've been looking up over the fence into the kingdom of God, wanting back in. And the illustration that the Bible gives us is that you and I are not powerful, high level, high wealth, high net income, high status people who one by one come up to the gate and our resume is reviewed and we're separated into the us and the them, the ins and the outs, the haves and the have-nots. The Bible teaches that all of us must come to this realization that we're really bankrupt, that we have no status, and that we're powerless. And until we do that, we're not granted access to the kingdom of God. Because the kingdom of God is not for the people who think they're powerful and who have status and who have wealth. The kingdom of God is for the people who say, I am bankrupt, I am powerless, I am without status, I don't deserve entry. And the kingdom of God opens up the doors and says, come to Jesus. Come in. The kingdom of God is, (laughs) we don't live in a kingdom at this point in American history. But understand it in virtue of this. If you became the citizen of another country, and some of you have done that, you've come into the States. I know one of our board members immigrated in the United States from Saudi Arabia, started studying at Penn State and graduated from there with an engineering degree, and for years and years and years was waiting to achieve a different level of citizenship status. And until that point, even with a master's degree and even with a great resume and even with a history of managing multi-billion dollar accounts, could not get a job in this country because he lacked a certain status. For years, went through that and waited and waited and waited and waited. And finally, this past year, was granted that status, and that week was offered like a dream job. Went right back to work as an engineer. And the moment that he received that status, this whole new set of opportunities came up. It was a transforming experience for him. The kingdom of God is like you coming into a... You leaving a foreign country and going into a home country, and when you come into the kingdom of God, when you accept the gospel, when the gospel has changed your life, you immediately have a status change. You immediately have a power change. You immediately have a wealth change. It all happens in the snap of a finger. It's a whole new administration with a whole new set of laws, a whole new set of values. And the values of the kingdom of God are in the adverse and the opposite of the kingdom of this world. What is the kingdom of God? Very simply, it is power from outside this world that has moved to the inside of this world to repair and heal this broken world. That's what the kingdom of God is. It is a power from the outside world, from God, that seeks to come into the inside of this world so that it can heal and repair the world. And so there's immediate transformation. Two illustrations the Bible gives us is it's, it's, on one hand, it's like being adopted. On the other hand, it's like being a foreigner who comes into a, a new kingdom and is immediately granted all the rights and the privileges and lives under the new values of a whole new administration. It's a whole new way of life. How does the gospel change our life? One way, through the radical reversal of your values. Here's our big idea this morning. The big idea is that the gospel immediately and eternally, those two words are important, the gospel both immediately and eternally transforms our status, our power, and our worth. How does the gospel do that? Through a radical reversal of our values. The gospel both immediately and eternally transforms our status, our power, and our worth. How? 
to a radical reversal of values. Let me show you how. In, in summary, I'll give it to you in summary form, and then I'll get, unpack it just a little bit. Here's what the gospel says. Here's the reverse, one of, some of the reversal of values. Here's the gospel says, the way up is down. It's one thing the gospel says. The way up, you want to achieve status, you go down. You lower yourself. It's not what the world says. The world says you want to grow in status, you go from being in the working poor to being in the middle class. You go from the middle class to the upper middle class. You go from the, it's a different way. You start to network. You start to get to know people. You work your way up. The gospel says the way up is not by exalt, lifting yourself up. The way up is by lowering yourself down. That's one reversal of value. It also reverses this other value. The way you become powerful, give your power away. The way you get power is to give up power. The way you gain control is to give up control. That's not what the world says. The world says as you gain power, you take more power. You take more control. You impose more of your will. The way up is down, the gospel says. The way to become powerful is to give up your power. The, the way you become enriched is by being bankrupt. That's not what the world says. That's what the gospel says. And if those three things become internalized in your life, you will be transformed in a way that is so attractive. Could you imagine living a life in such a way that you walk with such confidence of your status without having to work your way to the top? Can you imagine how your life would be different if you knew you had a power that was unattainable by any other source and you can relax by not having to be a control freak? Could you imagine what it would be like to not have to hit the lottery to feel like you could be generous? when you knew you had so much wealth beyond what you could ever imagine that it releases your grip on all of the resources you have and just frees you up to be as generous as you want to be and push that out into the margins of society and really help redeem this world. That's attractive to people because everybody's trying to get to those three places, but they're trying it the world's way. Transformation comes when you accept it the gospel's way. Number one, the gospel lifts us up when we lower ourselves down. The gospel lifts us up when we lower ourselves down. What are we talking about here? We're talking about status. Status. Now, I'm not talking about it in the Facebook terms of status. Because that is a whole different message for a whole different day. We'd have to help you identify what type of Facebook statuser you are. Are you an announcer? Are you a complainer? Are you a self-pityer? Are you a comedian? We don't know what kind you are, but that's not what we're talking about. Status. Status, really, what we're talking about here is it's a, it's a measurement. It's a, it's a measurement of a couple, couple different kinds of things. It's a, it's a measurement of your work experience, your individual and your family's economic and social position, your income, your education, your occupation compared to everybody else. That's status. Well, I thought status was just about how much I make. Well, maybe. That's part of it. Or how educated you are. Who you know. How much influence you have. Back in 2009, there was a, a major university that had a real deep think tank on trying to figure out how many different statuses do we really have represented in the United States. And they started with the assumption, well, we just have three. We have upper class, middle class, lower class. Based exclusively on income. But the more that they thought about it, they said it's actually more complex than that. There are different, 
assumptions we're making about people in all those different categories that aren't necessarily true or how they arrived in those categories that aren't necessarily complete. And so they actually thought more about, they came up with, with 12, 12 different classes. And I won't teach on all of those this morning, but I'll read you what some of the titles were just so you can understand how complex this gets. They started with generational poverty. Those are in that class. The harsh conditions of this type of poverty may keep these families from ever breaking that barrier for generations. Then you have the working poor. These families live paycheck to paycheck. They have jobs, but they often live in fear of being laid off. The working class. Generally, these workers have more stable employment than the working poor. They may use their hands and bodies as a primary tool to do their work. You have situational poverty, a crisis like a health crisis or a divorce or a catastrophe results in an income drop, causing them to be in a different class maybe than where their education or their typical earning power would place them. They're generally able to make it back to middle class due to their assets such as education, family support. Then you have other ones, the group that's, been, that's risen from poverty to the middle class, the illusory middle class, the lower aspiring middle class, the solidly middle class, the upper middle class, all kinds of different categories just for middle class. You have the millionaire middle class, a lot of you are thinking, Lord, let that be my burden to bear. Let me be the middle class of the millionaires who are defined as they have a net worth of over a million dollars but have not mentally accepted their wealth. You have the owning rich. They own income-producing assets sufficient to make paid, make paid employment necessary. And then they have the ruling rich. They hold positions of power in major institutions of society and may live secluded lives or are protected from the general public. I'm not going to have a sociology class this morning other than just to say that no matter what categories we throw out there, I don't think it's arguable that we have an idea of that there are different statuses that you and I are grouped into. There's different ways that you can arrive at this. But there's this general idea, and at least in this Western society that we live in, that all of us should be aspiring to get to a different class that's higher than the class we're currently assigned. That's success. That's forward mobility. That's honorable. That wherever we are, you even hear it in parents when they say, you know, I'll talk to parents all the time in this community. My neighbors, the, you know, the parents of the kids that I coach in Little League, the parents of the kids in my son's class at school, just different friends that we've made, our neighbors. And you ask them for the, you know, I usually ask, well, did you grow up in this area? And the ones who say yes, I say, well, why are you still here? Or the ones who moved in, well, what attracted you to this area? And I will tell you at least 50% of the time from people who are kind of like me in their late 30s or early 40s with school-age kids, I hear the same thing because I wanted to give my kids bet something better than what I had. That's buying into this. You know what they're thinking? The best thing I can do in life is move my family to a different class than what I came into. Is that an evil thing? No, of course it's not an evil thing. Because all of us are naturally wired to want to achieve a certain kind of status. So why is it that when we, when we come into the gospel, we have this idea that in order to achieve status with Christ, we have to lower ourselves? What, really, what does that even really mean? The gospel lifts us up into a brand new status. The Bible, the gospel assigns to you a different status than what the world can assign to you. And it's, there's a couple different words. I don't have time to give you both of them. I'll give you one of them. Here's one of the words that the Bible assigns to you as a status, and that word is sonship, S-O-N-ship. Now, I don't want you to be offended if, you know, if you're a female and you're saying, I don't identify myself as a son. I just don't have a better word for, for sonship than that. Okay, sons and daughters. Let's use that. 
The Bible assigns that status to those who come into God's kingdom. It doesn't assign you middle class. It doesn't assign you lower class. It doesn't assign you the millionaire middle class. It says, here's your status. Your status is son. Your status is daughter. And here's, I wish I could get this through more effectively than probably how I will. It is a status you receive now, not just a reward you receive later. Let me say that again. When you come into God's kingdom, this is a status you get right now, not just a reward you receive later. Now, let me tell you why that's important. Every other major world religion also promises you a reward later. They all do. Only Christianity, though, tells you you can be sure and you can have a status change right now. Every other major world religion leaves you hanging on your status until you get to the other side. Every other major world religion says your reward is based upon how you perform right now. And here's the pillars. Here's the laws. Here's the rules. And your status is determined in real time based upon your life. And your life's not over yet. So you don't really know until you get to the other side. Only Christianity says when you come in, you're a son. You are a daughter. That is a status change right now. Right now. Yes, there are rewards later on. Why does Christianity say that? Because salvation is by grace, not by works. It's by the grace of Jesus. It's because of what he did, not because of how you perform. So when you start to wrap your mind around this, you say, so it's not about me achieving a certain status of morality or giving a certain amount of money or going to church a certain amount of times? No, if you're still trying to earn your salvation, you don't understand the gospel. If you're here today to keep God from being angry at you, you're not here to commune with him. You're missing part of the gospel. You're missing a big part of it. And that is that your status changes the moment you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Your status changes. And in the moment that your status changes, your behavior hasn't changed that much. Your appearance hasn't changed. You don't look automatically like Jesus. But the moment that he adopts you, he says, I take responsibility for you now. You're my son, whether you behave or you don't. You're my daughter, whether you behave or you misbehave. Oh, pastor, you're making me nervous. If we don't scare people into behaving, then they're going to sin all the time. Friend, if your only motivation to live right is fear, you're missing grace. You're missing grace. Let me illustrate this to you two ways. I told you earlier about Adoption. We have that language here, that you're adopted as children. Here's the deal. If you don't understand adoption, you miss a big part of the gospel. If you don't understand what adoption is, you miss a part of the whole narrative about, about what it really means to be a Christian. Because being adopted is the very essence of what it means to be a Christian. Adoption is not a result of the child's efforts. Some of you have adopted children. Some of you are in the process of adopting children. Some of you have been adopted. We have children right now both in the well and in our kids' ministries who have been adopted. We have children that are here that are part of the foster care system that are in transition homes right now. We have some children that have been in the foster care system that are in permanent homes that are trying to adopt them. Right here, this morning, in our kids' ministries. Okay? If they get adopted, it's not because they're good lawyers, if they get adopted, it's not because they filled out a pile of paperwork. If they get adopted, it's not because they conducted a long search and series of interviews with potential parents. 
If they get adopted, it's not because of their behavior. It's not because of how they look or how they do in school. If they get adopted, it is entirely dependent upon the work of their adoptive parents. It's entirely based on them. It's not based on their merit. It's based on the parents. It's entirely dependent upon them. Adoption does not result in an immediate change of behavior at first. I have a cousin who was adopted from Colombia. And my aunt and my uncle flew over and they brought the baby back home. And he was immediately their son legally. But his behavior didn't automatically change from what it was in Colombia. His appearance didn't change. His language didn't change. What changed? His legal guardianship. His worth changed. His status changed. His power changed. His privileges changed. His environment changed. Not because of anything my cousin Ben's, my cousin Ben did for himself, but had everything to do with the adoptive parents. What does that mean? What does it mean? It means that God says to us, you're here with me now, whether you misbehave or not. And I promise to take care of you with all of the commitment and all of the love and all of the acceptance and all of the privileges as my own natural child. I want you to understand that Paul says, you and I, when we accept Jesus Christ, we are immediately transformed because we become the adopted children of God. Not based on how well you behave. Not based on how you look. Not based on your behavior. And the moment you're adopted, your, your old behaviors don't just disappear right away. I've been following Jesus a long time, and I'm in a much better place than I was in terms of my actions and behaviors, but there is still work for me to do, glory to God. There is still things in my life that need to be refined and changed. But it doesn't mean that I'm in and out of God's favor based on the work that needs to be done in my life. I am still broken and flawed, but I am simultaneously loved and accepted. I have a status change, but the only way I get to that status change is not by coming to God with a resume and say, look at everything that I've done, you should adopt me, but by coming to God and saying, I am an orphan. I am powerless. I am bankrupt. I am broken. I am flawed. And he says, come to me. Let me adopt you. Come to me. I'll write you into my will. Come to me. You will be a co-heir with my son, Jesus. And you walk around and you don't carry yourself like an orphan. You carry yourself like you are the son of the Almighty. That's what the gospel tells us. And if you will grab hold of it, it will release you from the pressure of constantly trying to climb the ladder of status. If you don't, you will carry that pressure into your relationship with God and Christianity will become drudgery for you. It will become miserable. You will do the teaching of the Bible as best you can out of fear and out of terror that you're still trying to earn something God's given you for free. Last illustration on this. I know I'm spending an unusual amount of time on the first point. The second two are much shorter, but this is really important to me that you understand this. This One of the best illustrations I've ever heard by uh, one of the dead preachers that I read a lot of this stuff, Charles Spurgeon, Baptist preacher from uh, England back in the day, back in the 1800s. He writes about this. He writes a parable that I think really illustrates this point beautifully. He says this. He says, there is a kingdom a long, long, long time ago And in that kingdom, there was a lowly gardener, and that gardener grew carrots. And on this particular year, he had an unusually beautiful, large, healthy carrot. It was the biggest carrot he had ever grown and the healthiest carrot he had ever grown. And so he harvested that carrot, and he carried it to the king. And he goes into the king's courts, and he kneels down before the king, and he places the carrot there, and he says to the king, he says, oh, king, he said, I'm just a lowly gardener, and you probably don't even know who I am. 
this is the very best carrot that I've ever produced or will ever produce, and I want to give it to you just as a token of my honor and my appreciation to you, my king. And the king discerns his heart, and the king's very touched by this, and he says, wow, I, I, I received that from you, sir. He said, also, as a matter of fact, he said, you know, I own the piece of land next to where you live. It's a beautiful piece of land. I'm going to give that piece of land to you. And I want you to take it as your very own because I know you're a good gardener and a faithful gardener. And I want you to be the very best gardener you ever can be. So why don't you take it and use that for your own as my gift to you? And the gardener is completely blown away and shocked, was not expecting that at all. And thanks the king and he leaves. Well, there's a certain wealthy nobleman who was in the court at that time who sees this go on. And he's thinking to himself, man, what just happened here? If the king is giving away five acres for one carrot, he starts doing the math in his hand and head and he's like, aha, I'll be right back. So the wealthy nobleman goes home and he brings in a stallion, a big horse. And he brings the horse, clip clop, clip clop. I won't do the sound effects, I'll spare you. I don't have my coconut shells from Monty Python, but the horse comes in. And he says, oh, king, uh, I raise horses, and this is my prized stallion. This is the best horse I've ever raised or will ever raise. I want to give it to you as a token of, of my appreciation and honor for all that you've done for me. And the king discerns his heart. And he says, thanks, and he takes the horse away. And that's it. And the nobleman is just standing there with his jaw open, kind of waiting and the king says, okay, okay, okay. Let me break this down for you. Let me explain this to you. Now listen up. The gardener gave that carrot to me. You gave that horse to yourself. You hear what he's saying? The gardener, the king says, he brought that carrot to me out of honor, out of love. You are giving me this horse because of what you think I'm going to give you back. You're really feeding yourself. You're not honoring me. If you do the things you do for the Lord for any reason other than your love and your honor for him, you're really feeding yourself. Because what you're saying is, oh, I've sinned. I, I've really stepped in it this time. I better get right with God right away. Why? If you really know him and you really love him and you really understand the gospel, you want to get right with God right away. Why? Because you miss him. You miss intimacy with him. You miss the communion you have when you're living right with him. And you want to make things right because you miss him. If you say, man, I really sinned. I really stepped in it. I've really been slacking on this, that, or the other. I better get it right. Why? Well, because if I don't, I might go to hell. If I don't, God might not hear my prayers. If I don't, I can interfere in God's blessings for me. What you're really saying is, I'm doing these things and making things right because I miss things, not God. You're still in that condition of not understanding the gospel. You're still living in such a way that you're trying to achieve your status by bringing to God all the do's and the don'ts and all the rules that you follow. And you're either leveraging them to get out of God what you want or you're living in terror that it's separating you from him. Christianity, the gospel, offers you an immediate status change not because of how good you are, but because of how good Jesus is. You understand, our sin was put on Jesus, but his righteousness was put on you. Both happen simultaneously. Our sin is put on Jesus. His righteousness is put on you. What does that mean? We sing about it. It's in 2 Corinthians. He became sin who knew no sin that we might be called righteousness. 
immediate status change, both now and eternally. I'll quickly, point number two. The gospel gives us power when we give up power and serve others. The gospel gives us power when we give up power and serve others. The gospel gives us power when we give it up. Well, pastor, I don't like the idea of giving up power. That means I'm going to be powerless. No, the Bible just gives you a different kind. And you can't get the Bible's power. You can't get God's power until you give up power, until you give up control. Well, what do you mean by that, pastor? I'm not a powerful person. Well, let me, show you, let me show you why I think that I might be right, and you might need to think through this a little bit more. Uh, verse 12, Therefore, dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you are not... You, you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. What is power? What do I mean when I say that? You think, like, well, I don't have a government office. I'm not a lawmaker. I'm not, uh, you know, I, or you might think, well, I am a lawmaker. Or I do have a certain amount of power. I do have a certain amount of civil or governmental or positional or vocational authority. I'm a manager. I'm a plant designer. I'm a, I'm a CEO. I'm a CFO. I have a certain amount of power. We all have a certain amount of power. Power is this. It's my definition. This is one of the definitions. Power is the measurement of your ability to impose your will on others. How much of your own will do you have the ability to push down on other people? I'll give you an example, an easy one. When I grew up, I had no power over what was being served for dinner. I thought that I did, but at age three, I fought and lost that battle. In my house growing up, you know what we had for dinner? Whatever mom said we had for dinner. You know how much I had to eat until my plate was clean. You know what options we had? There were no options. One of the worst uh, disciplinary responses I ever endured was uh, one night when my mom made something I didn't like, and I, I really didn't like it, and I knew we weren't allowed to say that we didn't like it, so I said, well, mom, for dessert, can I have several sandwiches? That did not end well for me. I had no power to impose what I wanted over the menu. Man, have times changed. I said, I'm not going to be the parent who argues and negotiates with my children about what they're going to eat. And then after several weeks of just them not eating anything and throwing it all on the floor, I'm like, fine, we'll negotiate. We have to be able to get something into your tummy. And now you have to be like a short order cook. Like, what do you want for dinner? What do you want for dinner? I know. Judge me later. Send me all your emails. I'll give you a bogus. I'll give you a fictitious email. You can send them all to um, I was so excited when I went to college and went to a college cafeteria for the first time. I was like, this is amazing. I can impose my will on whatever I want. If I want nothing but pudding for dinner, I can have it. I had a certain amount of power now to impose my will on dinner. And I use it as a funny illustration, but all of us live with a certain amount of power to impose our will on things. And it all traced back to the garden. And we've already covered that. Adam and Eve started our family tree. Our great, 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 great grandfather and grandmother start off by saying, there's a rule here about what we can eat. And God said, this is what my will is. And Adam and Eve, with a little convincing and a little bit of, of it, they thought, you know what? No, we know better. We're going to impose our own control over what we eat. We're fine with naming animals. We like that rule. We like the dress code around here. That's great. We like the available leisure time activities. Works for us. But there is one specific rule. You know what? I don't like that one. I'm not going to give up control over that rule. Now, let me bring it full circle. There's a whole lot of laws you don't like, except for a few 
that you think it's okay to break when you decide it's convenient for you. You want to keep control over the things you want to keep control over. But you want other people to pay when they don't keep control over the things they don't think they should keep control over. Do you understand that there's a problem here in the human heart? Here's what the kingdom of heaven says. If you want to stay in power and you want to stay in control, you can't get in. Simple as that. You want to retain the rights to decide what you do and what you don't do and how much of your will you impose on your life. You want to be in charge, then you be your own savior. You be your own God. How do you get power? You have to take it or someone has to give it to you. That's that's the way you get it. You have to grow into it. What gets assigned to you? And in this world, they say, if you want to have power, you keep climbing, you keep climbing. You take power and you hold on to it. You don't let go. Kingdom of heaven says this. If you come trying to be powerful, you can't get in. But if you come and say, I'm weak and powerless and I need somebody to help me change my life, it says, welcome. And it doesn't leave you powerless. Here's what the Bible says. The Bible says this. The Bible says the moment you're saved, his spirit is fused together with your spirit. The Bible says the moment that you're saved, the same spirit that had the power to bring back a clinically dead human corpse to unrecognizable beauty in the snap of a finger lives inside of you. And why do we walk around being so weak and so defeated? Because we can't get that power that's down inside of us. We can't get it up out of us. It's, it's like it's stuck in there for us because we don't recognize what we've already been given. You're begging God to give you more of something that already lives inside of you. What are we supposed to be using that power for? The Bible says you have all the power of the Spirit of God. Why? So you can walk around and do magic tricks and shoot repulsor beams and, and you know, make a money tree and name it and claim it and blab it and grab it and say it and spray it. No. None of those things. What we're supposed to be using that power for is to get our hands dirty, roll up our sleeves, go out into the margins of society and help God change the world we live in. That's what we're supposed to use it for. And it takes the people who you might not think, you, you look at this person, you say they're powerless and yet they walk in the power of healing and they walk into workplaces and the highways and the byways and they lay their hands on people and they're healed. It takes people who you say that person just looks like they're the most nervous, anxious person for whatever, but God gives them the power of courage and they walk into difficult situations and they bring peace and they bring order and they bring healing. When I look forward to what, what should we be doing with the power that we have inside of us as believers? One thing I think we need to be doing is renewing our efforts to mentor young men and women. There is a colossal breakdown in how our next generation is coming up and how their maturity is. Do I need to go that deep into the subject for us to at least agree on that? I will tell you, in our programs this morning, there are young men and women who, yes, come from maybe a traditional home where mom and dad live together. There's been one marriage, and they're being raised in Christian values. That's more the exception than the rule anymore. We have children in these ministries here today who are dealing with all kinds of different struggles and challenges that they didn't bring on themselves. We have children here who either their father or their mother is currently imprisoned. We have children here who are currently being fought over in custody battles. We have children here who are having discipline problems at school. And we're having to interact with principals. We have children here who, who know the stain of divorce. We have kids here who have buried their father this year. Young men and young women. And we started with a handful seven years ago. And now some Sundays we have 70, 80, 90 young men and women here. And I've stood up here before you and I've said, what we're doing with these kids for 90 minutes on Sunday is important. What we're doing with these kids is not just giving them goldfish and making paper airplanes. We are building rapport and relationship with these young men and these young women. And we're coming alongside many of you who are doing that already at home, but we're also coming alongside some of those who they're they're bringing their kids to church to say, I need some help and instilling some values into the lives of my children. A couple wrong turns for any one of us. And we could also be 15, 16, 17 years old 
on the wrong side of town at the wrong time doing the wrong thing. And I've stood up here and I've appealed and I've appealed and I've appealed and I've called and I've asked for people to help us mentor these young people. And not everybody's cut out for it. But you and I have been given power from God to help change culture, to help change society, to help change lives, to take young, impressionable men and women and show them the truth and teach them the truth and help them be productive and move healing in our, in, throughout our community. And I'm telling you, friends, I don't know what else to do for some of us to say, you know what, I'm going to make a change in my life to take some of what God's given me and I'm going to invest in this next generation. I'm going to mentor some people. Pastor, when you call us to go pray over our streets, I'm going to take you seriously now. How much more blood needs to be spilled? We are living in a day and age where we don't have to go underground and we don't have to be afraid. I might not be able to bring you a political solution. I might not be able to bring you a governmental solution. I might not be able to bring you a socioeconomic package. But I can tell you from walking with Jesus, there is a spiritual component to this. And I'm not relying on the government to do that. I'm calling the believers to get involved in that. I'm calling you and myself, I'm appealing to you to pray differently and with more urgency. I'm calling you to consider how you allocate your time and your resources and budget accordingly. I'm calling you to think about the opportunity we have every week with not every kid in the community, but a good group of kids here. We have an opportunity for 90 minutes a week to pour into these kids, to come alongside parents and grandparents and help them grow forward to help them learn right from wrong, to let them know that they're loved, to teach them discipline and correction when they have it. Yes, when we open up a new building, we're going to start midweek discipleship programs for boys and for girls. Yes, we're going to do that. But friends, let's not be the ones that point the finger in every other direction. Right here, there is more than enough power. There are more than enough people to say, we can at least do what we can do with the kids that we have here, with the young people that we have here. We can certainly pray over our community. I'm really sweating today. I'm sorry. I just noticed it. I won't describe that to you. I think that's my sign to move on to the next point. So how do, you get, how do you get power in the world? By gaining control. How do you get power in God's kingdom? You get in by surrendering all your power. What do we use this power for? Pushing out in the margins of society and lifting others up. Let's get involved in this world and repair it. Finally, the gospel enriches us when we give our riches away. I have no time to preach this point, so I'll just give you the illustration. I know some of you are nervous, like, Pastor, are you going to be talking about money and tithing and giving again? No. Because I think it's so much deeper than that. I think it's so much deeper than that. But I do hear this a lot. Pastor, if I hit the lottery, the, the checks that I would write for this church, I mean, first of all, what do you want me to say when you say that? <laughs> but it's not just here. I mean, how many people spend time daydreaming, like, if I just got half a million dollars, if I just got two million, if I just got four million, what would I do with it? And I, and I would imagine that in both of our imaginations, we're a whole lot more generous in those scenarios than we are in our present day. What we're really saying is this, is I think I would be more generous if I knew I had more. If I knew I had more wealth, I'd be more generous, which studies have shown us that that's not the truth, but that's not my point this morning. The studies have actually shown us that percentage-wise, people who make less than $20,000 per year in the United States last year gave more per capita percentage-wise than those making $100,000 or more to, to charitable organizations. The more you have, the harder it is to give away. The data says. There's exceptions, I'm sure. But what we're really saying is if I knew I had enormous wealth, I'd be much more generous. Do you understand how much wealth you have when you come into God's kingdom? 
Do you understand how much eternal? Well, I'm waiting to see it in my mailbox. You might see it on this side of eternity. You might not. That's not the point. You can't take any of that with you anyway. We're all going to go to the same hole in the ground at the end of the day. At the end of the day, what happens is when you realize you have more wealth in heaven than you can ever imagine, that nobody on this earth can take from you, it's easy for you to say, you know what? I can give away my time and my resources. I don't have to strive so hard. I don't have to hoard cash. I really can be. I can be generous because I don't need that cash to buy a status that God's already given me. I don't need that cash to have power. The Lord's given me something even different and better than the power that the world has to offer. And I don't have to come to God and try and buy a better mansion by making a mortgage payment to the Lord. I can come to him and say, I'm completely bankrupt. He says, come on in and be a bajillionaire. When you grab onto those things, they transform your life. You live more generously. You live with more confidence. You act with more humility. You don't strive so hard. You're not bent out of shape so easily. So in conclusion, here's the nutshells as the worship team comes back because I have absolutely got to go stop sweating somehow. It's becoming an electrical hazard. The gospel is news about what Jesus has done and not primarily advice about how to live. Jesus lived the life I should have lived. He died the death I deserve to die in my place as my substitute so that I'm loved and accepted by God on Jesus' sake, on Jesus' resume, and on his account, not on my own. I am simultaneously more wicked and broken and flawed than I could ever comprehend, but I am also more loved and accepted than I ever dreamed. The way up is down. The way to gain power is to lose power, and the way to become rich is to give it away. Why are you saying all that? Because salvation was achieved by a radical reversal of values, and salvation is received by radical reversals of values. What do you mean by that? The way that salvation is even possible is because values were reversed. Jesus lowered himself down from heaven. It didn't take on the role of a, of a king, of a wealthy, influential person. It didn't give himself a media platform. He lowered himself in order that you and I could be lifted up. He set aside all of the power and the authority that he had. You realize he could have stopped his execution at any point, but he went through and let the execution play out. He set aside his power so that one day you and I could receive power. He gave away all of it. He forfeited his riches in heaven and took on the role of a poor boy, a poor architectural apprentice whose family couldn't even afford to put him in a nice place to be born. He gave his riches away in order that you and I could become rich. That's how salvation was achieved. Well, how do you receive this? When we lower ourselves, Jesus lifts us up and changes our status from sinner to son. When we surrender our power, Jesus supplies us with more power than we ever dreamed. And when we give ourselves away, we don't panic because we know we're already more wealthy than our imaginations could ever possibly process. Let's pray this morning. Will you bow your head and close your eyes? I believe with all my heart that some of you are listening to this and saying, Pastor, I'm hearing the gospel clearly, and there's some things in my life that need to change. There's some values that need to be reversed, and I know I'm, I'm trying to be a Christian. Listen, if you're trying to be a Christian, you don't understand the gospel. You don't. Pastor, that makes me feel bad. I don't want you to feel bad. I want you to say, but I want to understand the gospel. Let me tell you, it's not about you trying. Is there work that we do? Yes. Is there advice that we should follow? Absolutely, but that's not the primary message of the gospel. The primary message of the gospel is Jesus has done it all. He's done it all. Will you follow him? Will you give up your control? Will you 
understand the true bankrupt nature of your life? Will you move away from spending your whole life trying to climb to a better status? And will you receive his offer to adopt you as his own, to make you his son or his daughter, and to cover you and to impute upon you a righteousness and a wealth and a power that nothing else in this world can rival or supply. And if your answer to that is yes, let me tell you how you begin that relationship today. It is as simple as A, B, C. Admit, believe, choose. You admit, I am powerless. I am without status. I am bankrupt. I admit that. But I also, let her be, I believe Jesus. I believe you lived the life I haven't lived. You died the death that I really deserve as my substitute in my place, and I believe that I can be accepted based on what you did and on your record, not on my own record or on my own merit. And finally, will you see, will you choose? Will you choose to give up control and surrender to his control? It's the only way you'll defeat sin. It's the only way you'll find freedom is by saying, I'm no longer going to be the one who has to control everything and impose my own will. I want God's will to be imposed on my life because a God who loves me that much can be trusted to be in control. If you're ready for that, let me lead you in a prayer. I want you to join me in this prayer if you're ready. Jesus, I admit I am broken, flawed, bankrupt, without status, powerless before you. Jesus, I believe in you. I believe in everything that you've done. I believed in your sinless life, your death on the cross as my substitute. I believe you came back to life and you're alive today. I simply take you up on your offer, God, to accept me on your son's record, not on mine. And Jesus, I'll let you place your righteousness on me. And I will begin to look in the mirror and see me as you see me, not with all my brokenness and flaws. I will walk with humility, but also with confidence. And finally, I choose to forfeit control of my life. And I come up under your leadership. I lower myself to being your servant because I trust you and your will better than my own. In your mighty name I pray, amen.